Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of the Berkeley Sports Law Podcast. Today I'm here with Professor Richard Brand, managing partner of Aaron Fox. Um, Professor Brand, I've had a chance to be part of your class this semester, so I have a little bit of understanding about your path to becoming a quote-unquote sports lawyer, but I'd love to give you the chance to speak on your trajectory from a law school graduate to the type of work you do now. Be happy to talk about that a little bit. Uh, the short answer is I had no clue I would be doing what I'm doing. Uh, the path, the trajectory, the plan was completely unplanned. Uh, some of you may have a little bit more foresight and be able to plan it, but my trajectory was I went into a law firm. I became a pretty good real estate lawyer. I worked with a real estate, senior real estate partner who after working about six or seven years, I found out uh, coincidentally represented the owner of an NBA and an NHL team. Mm -hmm. And as a result of my relationship with him doing real estate law, he said he wanted me to be his lieutenant when we were building a new stadium called the MCI Center. It was actually an arena mm -hmm. in D.C. So that was my trajectory. That's how I went from real estate to um, sports law. Uh, what does that mean to be into sports law? Kind of depends. We love to say sports law. Mm -hmm. It makes everybody excited and it sounds super cool. But in the end, when you think about the elements of putting together that stadium, I did financing, I did the real estate, I did sponsorships, I did every little agreement you can imagine, and in the end, it was really a very large real estate project. Mm -hmm. Having said that, it got me off to a beginning path to start working for other teams and doing lots of other sports-related stuff. So my trajectory was pretty much with my eyes closed, <laughs> uh, but when I opened them up, I was, lo and behold, a sports lawyer, and it's one of those things where the more deals you do, the more deals you get. Yeah. Uh, for better or for worse. So I think a question that a lot of law students ask, and they say that they're, I'm passionate about sports, and we talked about that in class, that you know that passionate about sports is not sufficient to be a sports lawyer. Um, but are there things that law students who are currently in the process of school can do to kind of build these skills that would set them up for being successful in this type of field? Yes, uh, and unfortunately it's a super boring answer. Uh, the answer <laughs> is it's the same thing you have to do to become uh, a very high-level litigator or a high-level uh, FDA lawyer or a high-level corporate and securities lawyer. You have to become very good at particular skills. So what you need to do is, rather than focus on being a sports lawyer, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. what you need to focus on is if you think you're interested in a litigation type thing, become a good litigator. If you're interested in transactional work, become a good transactional lawyer. Very few people I know in the sports industry would be unwilling to hire an extremely good lawyer with extremely good skills because they don't have enough experience in the sports industry. Right. That said, being interested in sports is good. Certainly when you go for an interview, if you interviewed someone who was the general counsel of a professional sports team and you said, I'm not that interested in sports, that would not be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But to start with, I think the favorite word that everybody says is sports is their passion. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really move anybody because they're not looking for people who are passionate about sports. They're looking for someone who's passionate about what they're going to be doing, which in my case is the business of sports. Right. So you need to be made clear to people that that's what you're most interested in. If you were interested in true sports, then you should become a general manager or perhaps a player or perhaps a coach. Mm -hmm. But for what I do, it really is a transactional-based practice, and they want that to be where your interest is. Right, and I think reflected in what you just said and some of the other speakers we discussed is 
uh, sports as an industry and you know, the skills you build are the ones around it, like the transactional efforts or negotiating with clients and building personal relationships. Um, so it seems like the advice to law students that we've heard through the interviews is build the skills first and be a good lawyer and then then I guess kind of fall into working in the sports industry if, if you have the right connections or however it may come by. Well, well, it's, it's an excellent point, and sports is an industry. It's not a practice area. Uh, the good news for all of you who are interested in being a sports lawyer is because it's just an industry and it's not a practice area, when you get your first job out of law school and it doesn't happen to be with a law firm which is doing these super cool sports transactions, mm -hmm. it's not a hard stop for you. It means you can, again, practice a trade, become good at that, and at the same time, you can show your interest in sports by joining the Sports Lawyers Association, by joining the ABA Sports and Entertainment Division, yeah. by seeking people out, talking about what they do. There's so many different sports-related organizations out there. Mm -hmm. So you can show your interest in sports at the same time that you're developing a trade. And then, once you've developed that trade and perhaps made some connections through all your other networking, then you can hopefully put that together and become a quote-unquote sports lawyer, which yeah. of course doesn't exist, but it sounds good anyway. Right. And so I think, that, I think that answers a lot of the questions that law students may have. Maybe we shift gears a little bit towards your work. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things about you is just reading through your profile of your past work. Um, like Levi Stadium, Barclays Center, Hard Rock Cafe. Um, you were involved in all those deals with these different teams from different leagues. And I think the natural question is, how, how does a young lawyer who's in this industry go about building those connections and developing relationships with clients? You mentioned that at first it was the fact that a senior partner had a relationship with somebody who's building a stadium, MCI Center. Um, but I'm guessing, I, I guess what I want to know is, how has it evolved since then? Has it been through referrals or just meeting people at different conferences or? Uh, the answer to your, your two-part question is yes. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of everything. Uh, I did get lucky by starting with a senior partner who got me to, I sort of, you know, was able to break into sports law by working on that transaction. At that point, it occurred to me, I'd like to do more than just work for this one client. Working for the Wizards and the Capitals and the MCI Center, a lot of tremendously interesting transactions. That's enough for anybody's quote-unquote sports career. Right. Uh, but I wanted more. So what I did was I sought out, a, one of my um, contacts got me an interview with the, what the, was then the New Jersey Nets when they were going to be building a new arena, which has ultimately been the Barclays Center. Mm -hmm. I sought them out. I was, for some reason, I don't exactly know why, they granted me an interview to talk about doing sponsorship, naming rights, suite license agreements, and things like that. Right. Uh, they said they were hiring, they were going to interview the four top uh, naming rights lawyers out there and me, because <laughs> I clearly wasn't one of those four. And I don't know why, I was a little bit lucky, maybe I had a particularly good day, I got that work. Once I got that work, I became somewhat known, having worked on the most recent and the most uh, valuable uh, new property out there, the Barclays Center. From right. there, I was able to get, I think the next thing is I got a call from Time Warner Cable, actually from the Charlotte Bobcats, who were do, was doing a name race. And then all these different connections started to materialize. And you know, once you do a couple, you do others. And at the same time, I'm still doing my networking. I'm speaking at mm -hmm. conferences. I'm speaking at panels. Um, I was outside general counsel for the Wizards, so I would get to go to the NBA team meetings, and that's how I developed relationships with a lot of the general counsels. So it's a combination of all different things. Right. And as a young lawyer, what you need to understand 
is there is no one way to do it. You have to figure out what your best way to do it is, what's your key way to network. Mm -hmm. You also have to realize that you have to give it time because when you just come out of law school, most of your friends and your counterparts are at a relatively low level. Yeah. Seven years later, six years later, eight years later, all of a sudden they're in either a decision-making situation or one there where they can talk to the decision-makers. Mm -hmm. So you have to be a little bit patient about, it, patient about it, and you have to do it the way you do it, whether it's playing intramural sports, going to a bunch of sports lawyers' conferences, or just hoping you bump into a senior partner who introduces you. There's no one way. Right. So I think it's very organic, it seems like. First, you have to be good at what you do, and then people that you come across start to take notice. And the client relationships start to come naturally out of that, it seems like. Um, that, to me, is the best way to do it. Uh, I can't say there aren't people who are mediocre lawyers with terrific contacts. That's true in this world in sports law, in non-sports law, and in every industry. We all know those people who aren't that gifted, but they're very well connected. Mm -hmm. And sometimes connected is better than gifted. Uh, but at least uh, becoming good at what you're doing is something you can control. I can't control being connected. I can do the best I can, right. but I can work on my skills and nobody is going to be upset with you if you happen to be a good lawyer. Right. It, it's not going to say, someone's going to say, I would have loved to give you the work, but your skills are too good, so uh, never mind. So, uh, so my advice is become a good lawyer right. and also become a nice person. Nobody wants to work with a jerk. Mm -hmm. um, some people do work with jerks, but nobody, that's not anybody's first choice. Right, so control those things that you can. Um, so I guess we'll go into kind of the substantive work. I think a lot of listeners might not even know what a naming rights agreement is. Um, we gave a couple of examples like Levi's Stadium, uh, where the Levi's Jeans and Clothing Company put their name on the 49ers Stadium, basically. Um, we've discussed in class how it's like a big sponsorship agreement where they have the name on the outside of the stadium, they have a majority of the signage inside the stadium. Um, but I'd love to give you the chance to kind of talk about naming rights agreements and what goes into those negotiations, how these corporations choose to choose where they want to sponsor, like why would Levi's want to sponsor a stadium in San Francisco, um, or what goes into that calculus for your clients that you've seen? Certainly, and 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 to just to start off with what a naming rights agreement is, uh, because you're right, most people, if you talk to the average person and you ask them what a naming rights agreement, you would get two possible answers. One would be beats the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. That would probably be the most likely one. And then somebody who felt that they knew something would probably say a naming rights agreement is when you get to put your name on the outside of a stadium and perhaps on the napkins. Mm -hmm. um, that is partially true, but only partially true. As you say, and as I've probably talked in the class, a naming rights agreement is a sponsorship agreement on steroids. Mm -hmm. It's everything that's in a sponsorship agreement plus the right to put your name on the side of that, on the outside of the arena or on those napkins. And the reason why that's important is because these people who say, I can't believe somebody would pay all those millions of dollars just to put their name on something, yeah. they're, they're not realizing that there's a lot of other things you get. And so somebody who would normally go out and uh, license a sign or maybe buy an ad or a television spot, mm -hmm. uh, something like that, they're getting all of those things in naming rights agreement. It's an amalgamation of a lot of different things. So that's what a naming rights agreement is. Now, why would someone want to sponsor it? So many different reasons, or, or become a naming rights partner, um, but there needs to be a good fit. In fact, you mentioned Levi Stadium. I had represented the 49ers, and, uh, and everybody was talking about how, much, how well that would work. The 49ers were a very 
uh, still are, a very socially responsible company in San Francisco, very well-known mm -hmm. uh, people, very, very popular organization. And Levi's was one of the first companies here back in the days of the right. gold, gold diggers, uh, gold miners. And I think what happened was people decided, gee, this is a terrific marriage between the two. In fact, it was, this isn't my pun, this was the newspaper's pun, but what they had said at the time when the Levi's did the naming rights deal was the Levi's uh, 49ers deal was the perfect fit which mm -hmm. is, of course, a play on the fact that they make jeans and things right. like that. But so you do want to figure out what makes sense for you. I represented Golden One for the new Sacramento Kings uh, new arena, and it was Golden One is the largest credit union in the state of California, and many people never even heard of it. Right. So by doing that sponsorship based on where they lived in Sacramento, where they were founded in Sacramento, many more people became aware of it. And when you do those elements and the entitlements that they get, they started making it in a way that was going to be more useful to all of their customers. For instance, if you are a Golden One Credit Union member and you go to a game, they have a specific fast pass lane mm -hmm. so you can get your food quicker. You get discounts on tickets. So it's very important for both the team and the sponsor to come up with things that are going to energize and activate their sponsorship. You see more of that now than you used to because people are obviously more concerned about spending more money rather than less money. Yeah. So it seems like it's a two-pronged you know, aspect of the naming rights agreement where the, the team wants to have a fit with that sponsor. 49ers wanted to have Levi's partly because it was a native, uh, natively founded, like the Atlanta Stadium that, you, that we've talked about. Probably wanted Mercedes-Benz because of how the stadium was constructed to be first class and elegant. Um, and then on the other side, the, the company, the, the sponsor wants to have that brand equity tied to that that right. team, that area. And everybody has a different reason. You use Mercedes-Benz as an example. It's a very good example because, number one, uh, there's no better, there's no more luxurious name out there than Mercedes-Benz. So one of the ways to brand your stadium as a top, top stadium, which it actually is a top, top stadium, right. you call it Mercedes-Benz Stadium. On the flip side, right about the time that we were doing the deal, Mercedes was moving its entire U.S. operations from New Jersey to Atlanta. Mm. So it's a perfect branding opportunity to, to, to deal with their move from New Jersey to Atlanta. Had they not been moving to Atlanta, would they have done the, the name? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it certainly was something that was in top of mind for most of these people. UCLA Health did a training deal with the LA Lakers. Why? UCLA, UCLA Health is one of the top health brands out there in California, either first or second, and the Lakers are a top brand, and I thought they all saw that as a perfect marriage, yeah. and it works that way. So everybody's got a story, and it's really up to the business people and the marketers on both sides to figure out what that fit is. Yeah. So I think one way that these naming rights agreements have started to evolve a little bit is um, through the jersey patches. Um, so we've already seen that in the Premier League for so many years where almost half the jersey is a sponsor name. Um, but specifically in, in the NBA, we've started to see jersey patches on the opposite end of the, the Nike or Adidas logo. Um, does that negotiation differ at all? Or is it basically the same basic agreement but just the, the placing of the signage is in a different area? Well, a, a patch agreement is not a naming rights agreement. A patch agreement is really more akin to a sponsorship agreement. A naming rights agreement is really when you are naming something. You're, you're naming the stadium, the arena. It's going to be Levi's Stadium. It's going to be Mercedes-Benz Stadium. You're naming a tennis tournament. You're naming a golf tournament. Yep. That's not what the patch is. What the patch is is it's, it, it's absolute front-of-mind advertising. 
It's tremendous advertising. It's not different than having the name of the sponsor on the basketball court as they run by or having them on the back of the seats. It is different in that it's phenomenal advertising because every time you look at a player, you're going to see that patch. Right. So it's really more of a sponsorship agreement. So the, the what's going to be entitled, what's going to, that, is that going to entail versus a sponsorship agreement? Pretty much the same stuff. There may be some patch-related things. Mm -hmm. There will be some NBA regulations governing how a patch could be used, what the sizes are, where they're going to go. It could be changed. They're short-term deals because nobody knows, at least initially, because nobody knows how long there'll be a patch deal. But it really is a sponsorship agreement and not a naming rights agreement. It's just one of the best sponsorship elements you could come up with. Right. Your name on every of the every one of those top athletes. Right. So we've we've talked about how brands kind of try to associate themselves with the team through these sponsorships or naming rights. Um, shifting gears a little bit to another huge aspect of your work, media rights agreements. Um, Another thing that I think a lot of listeners might not know, but affects every single consumer of sports. Um, could you go into what a media rights agreement is exactly and how the, how the sports team interfaces with these television networks or um, things like that to bring this content to fans and consumers? Sure. A media rights agreement is a very broad term to describe, not shockingly, an agreement regarding media rights. Right. You're not ever supposed to answer a question with with that, but I did anyway. Uh, that's what a media rights agreement is. Unlike uh, some of my uh, students when I talked to FAST thought I was talking about meteor rights <laughs> agreements and they thought that I was a geologist. Well, this isn't geology. This is sports. And a media rights agreement is the agreement by which distribution of a broadcast is is covered. It's And usually, in, in the case of one I did, I did the Time Warner Cable agreement, which now Time Warner has since been purchased by Spectrum, so it's not Time Warner Cable anymore, they paid an enormous sum of money to the Los Angeles Lakers for the right to distribute their basketball games. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what a media rights is. They used to be called television broadcast agreements because we used to have television broadcasts. Yep. Now what they are is their media rights agreement, and that what that really signifies is the fact, as you, you know and everybody who listens to this uh, uh, podcast is going to know people watch everywhere the concept of TV anywhere and everywhere is part of the world so if Time Warner Cable right now only bought the rights to put the Lakers games on television and nothing more they would be getting a very bad bargain because half the people are going to be watching it on their iPhone watching it on their iPad streaming it and doing all those other things so media rights agreement is broadly an agreement with respect to the sale and, and use of media rights. That's really all it is. Right. So I think the natural question from that is you mentioned TV everywhere and um, the streaming and things like that. Um, how, is tech, has, how has technology become part of those agreements? Or have you ever done a deal directly with one of these big tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, um, where they're attempting to gain the rights to purchase media rights? Like I think Thursday Night Football is now licensed to Amazon and Twitter. Right. Right. Those are called over-the-top uh, distributors where they sort of cut out the middleman. And those are parts of the deal sometimes. Right. It, it kind of depends on which way you decide to go. You use the NFL as an example. The NFL decided to divide up all the various elements, the streaming, and you know, as you said, they have something on Thursday, different distributors. The NBA packaged it together and they sold it. So each league is going to do things differently. Yeah. They're not all going to do it the same. But the whole concept of TV anywhere, TV everywhere, is that if you're the media rights company and you're paying an enormous amount of money, you want to make sure 
that as technology evolves, you haven't lost out on a possible asset. You know, back in the day, I think my first meteorites deal was probably, gee, it was probably in the mid-1990s, something mm -hmm. like that. And at that point, the only thing that was on TV was uh, of the 82 games, NBA games, the 41 away games were televised. Mm -hmm. The 41 home games were on the radio because they weren't allowed to broadcast them locally because, and they didn't have cable at that time for those very first things. So that was all you sold and your agreement was very easy. I'm going to pay you X dollars for 41 away television games a year, period. Right. And that, now that has obviously morphed. By the way, it shouldn't shock you to find out that the money we pay, we get now, is significantly more than the money they got then. <laughs> So as a good media rights attorney, you have to make sure, and, and it's a tension on both sides. The team obviously wants to get the most money possible and give the least rights away. Right. Uh, the broadcast company, of course, would like to pay the least amount and get the most rights. But you're both aligned in the fact that the team is, is buying two things. One, they're buying, well actually it's not buying, they're, they're selling one thing, they're getting the right to a ton of money. But they're also buying the right to have their television games or, or iPod or iPad games or whatever streaming they have broadcast on some medium so people can see it. Uh, yeah. if, that's how they make their money, right? People get into it. If, you, if the Golden State Warriors did a deal for a tremendous amount of money but it only related to putting their games on broadcast television, yeah. it would be a real loss for them because they would have lost an opportunity. So. What happens with technology is when you're a good drafts person, you have to draft around that. And the way you draft around that is you draft broadly. So maybe it says instead of saying the rights to television broadcast, it's the right to television broadcast and any other broadcast or, or podcast or streaming or right. distribution of any other television rights either existing today or existing in the future. So that 10 years later when your 20-year agreement is halfway through, you're still going to be able to get the distribution and the rights that you originally intended to have. Right, so it seems like there's a there's a skill there as a lawyer that you have to almost draft it as broadly as possible because technology evolves so much faster than the documents that we write that in, in two years there might be an entirely different type of media um, through some invention or through some new content generation. So you have to prepare for that when you write the contracts. Well, that's true. That There is a skill, but the unfortunately or fortunately, there's someone on the other side with the same skill. Mm -hmm. trying to cut back those rights, to reduce the... So it's like everything else that you've ever seen in a transaction. It's about the leverage. It's about who has more of it. And sometimes, you know, there's that golden rule, the one with the gold rules. So if you're going to pay enough money, then you're probably going to be able to get things in your agreement that the other side would rather not give you. So it's a negotiation like everything else. But yes, ideally, what you want to do is you want to make sure that your agreement li lives on and covers all the things that people could not have anticipated. Right. Because honestly, when I, you know, in, in, in the late 19, 1990s, nobody would have ever anticipated the things that we do. Nobody would have anticipated that I'd be sitting with you talking into an iPhone. <laughs> it just wasn't within the realm of the possible. Mm -hmm. But here I am talking into an iPhone and a good lawyer, and not just for sports, for technology, for anything. Mm -hmm. Truthfully, if you were, if you were working for, for Amazon, Imagine if you represented Amazon and Amazon was just a brick and mortar company and you didn't cover the possibility that mm -hmm. people are going to get their mayonnaise sent to them overnight by package. It's something right. that everybody has to be comfortable with uh, from the beginning that we're talking about an evolving world, quickly evolving world. Right, so that actually kind of 
leads perfectly into the next question about the future of the industry, especially your work as a transactional lawyer in the sports industry. Um, wondering how how you stay prepared for these ever-evolving landscapes and different changes. Is it is it about leaning on maybe other people in your firm, or is there something specific that you do, like trainings, or um, just how, how do you stay abreast of all these different things that keep changing, especially in this field? Well, it's a good question, and the answer is, like so many of the answers I've given you so far, is really not sports-related. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the way anybody stays abreast of things in whatever they're doing, whether they're in a technology field, whether they're in the sports field, whether they're in a retail leasing field. Um, what you have to do is you have to stay on top of the market. You have to read about it. You have to keep your face in the news to see what's happening. You have to have people on your team that are very much up to speed. I have a guy who's a technology genius, and right. so if one of my guys has an issue on Wi-Fi or dealing with um, the categories in a sponsorship agreement for a communications company, I can draw upon this person and they can explain, well, this is what you do and that's what you do. So it's a question of teamwork and staying on top of it and being kind of lucky. Um, and, and, it, and every day is a new day and things change, particularly, I, I won't even say particularly in sports, but particularly in anything that involves technology. And I think, as you know, everything involves technology now. Right. Um, that it, you know, it even includes leasing. You know, if you lease a big project, you need to make sure that it's going to have the Wi-Fi capacity. You need to make sure that it's going to have certain things that nobody would have thought about before. So you have to stay abreast of things, and you have to have a good team, and you have to have people who know what they're doing. Well, I know a lot of this has affected the team side and representing players, like the the use of analytics and metrics um, and all the, the new um, way of quantifying leverage and things like that. Has that also affected your work on the team side and doing these these type of agreements, or is this this type of work still more about the people and negotiating terms? Yeah, honestly, I don't I don't think it, it, the analytics and the metrics make much of a big difference in what I'm doing. I think what they do is they help define the types of benefits that people are going to want to have and the type of money that they're going to be willing to pay. So if you have some analysis, analytics and you have some metrics and you determine that your target market is going to be age 17 through 30, well then you're going to have a significant impact, you're going to be significantly interested in social media and right. things like that. If your target market is in the mid-50s, 50s and 60s, you know, the NFL sometimes has an older market, you might find less of an emphasis on that. But from my perspective, that doesn't really matter that much. Although you have to be facile with the elements, for the most part, the clients are going to say, this is where we want to focus on, this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So that, that brings me to our last segment. We always, we always tend to end with a segment we call War Stories, um, where we give the platform to the interviewee to share anything interesting or compelling that they've done in their work, um, just from listening to to you in class and reading a little bit about you. Um, one of the first clients you worked with was the Washington Wizards, um, and they sold they sold the team to somebody quite famous, Michael Jordan. Um, and you were involved in almost every single sport and different teams. So I just want to give you the platform to kind sure. of speak about some interesting things in I your career. I can tell you a few stories. First of all, so I don't ever get told, told uh, I'm misquoting something, Michael Jordan never actually bought the team. He mm-hmm. did buy the Charlotte Hornets, but he never bought the team. What happened was the team 
appointed him as the president of basketball operations, which is essentially a general manager of the team. So we did that, and I was responsible for that transaction. And then he went from being a, the president of basketball operations to, an, to a player, mm -hmm. which means he had to leave the ownership position, because in the NBA you can't have both an interest in the team and be a player. And then when things were over, they, there was a parting of the ways, and I was uh, somewhat involved in that. So, so those are, though, though, that was the Michael Jordan transaction. There's not much to say about it other than the fact that, you know, you say a war story. I wouldn't call it a war story because if it was a war, I was going to lose it. Um, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan, you know, the most phenomenal player, incredibly bright man, tremendous amount of charisma. So the fact is negotiating a deal with him is not that much different than if I were doing the player contract for LeBron James. Mm -hmm. uh, negotiating for LeBron James, the way you would negotiate his player contract is you would ask him what he wants and then you would give it to him. <laughs> and, you would and you would hope that you were polite about it when you did that so you did not do anything that would make him not want to come. Similarly with Michael Jordan, although we certainly had negotiations, clearly you have to understand that you're dealing with, you know, frankly, not a, not, not a person, you're dealing with um, this, this, this concept. Michael Jordan is the man, uh, right. the, the, the greatest basketball player ever. Some may disagree. I still think he's the greatest ever. So that was one interesting war story. Second thing I would say is in negotiations for some of these large deals, you have what is called a lockdown. Um, not always, but often you have a lockdown. And to most people, it sounds like a pretty ominous thought. Mm -hmm. uh, it was ominous for the people involved, but it wasn't ominous in general. What happens is people have determined that in a big deal like that, the best way to get a deal done is you get a deal done by having everybody in the room and nobody can leave. <laughs> I did that for the Barclays Center with the Brooklyn Nets, and I spent four weeks working on a term sheet and then another four weeks on the agreement. And we stayed at the hotel and we worked round the clock day in, day out, and nobody left, not the business people, not the lawyers. It's called a lockdown. Mm -hmm. I did the same thing with the Los Angeles Lakers. What's interesting about that one is one was the Barclays Center was in New York with Barclays Bank, and that had its own way of doing it. Yeah. But the Lakers was a little bit more interesting because it was done L.A. style. So we were at the Lakers headquarters. They had this wonderful catering company outside posted round the clock. I never ate so well in my life. There were times when I didn't really feel like eating. I was so tired, mm -hmm. but I never ate so well. They had a catering company, and they even hired a masseuse to walk around and in between you know, meetings and all, they would offer a massage for you. So it was sort of, it was a lockdown LA style, which was also pretty interesting. So those are the couple of war stories that come to mind. Right, so I think we've gone through the gamut of media rights agreements, naming rights agreements. You've given us a taste of what it means to become a quote-unquote sports lawyer, we've realized that that term is a misnomer and really it's important to be a good lawyer first, build connections, and then um, then kind of fall into the industry naturally or organically. Um, so, so for our listeners, you've heard about the lockdown and all, all these interesting aspects of Professor Brand's work. Um, so we're going we're gonna to let you go, Professor Brand. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, for our listeners, you can follow us at Bejezel on Twitter, B-J-E-S-L, and look out for future episodes of the Berkeley Sports Law Podcast. Thank you for listening.